Imagine, a podcast series by Imagine Theatre. Hello again, I'm Martin Ballard, and as the year flies by, welcome to the 31st episode of this podcast series from one of the biggest producers of pantomime and children's theatre in the UK. For more information, go to their website at www.imagintheatre.co.uk. I hope you've been listening to our previous 30 episodes, but a quick reminder that if you have missed any of my conversations with creatives, actors or behind-the-scenes tours of Imagine Theatre, you can catch up with them at any time because they are all still available. And don't forget to subscribe to the series so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. Now, in episode 30, we spoke to the actor, director, writer and fellow dame, Jason Mark Williams. This time we're turning our attention to the music in pantomimes because I've been joined by the musician who's toured the world with icons like Neil Diamond, Carly Minogue, Gary Barlow and the Supremes, keyboard player, musical director, arranger and veteran of 30 years of panto, Steve Power. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Martin. How did all this begin for you? Tell us a bit about where you're from, first of all, and how you got interested in music in the first place. Okay, well, I'm from Manchester. As a child, I found the love of piano from the age of five. Started piano lessons, went through school, GCSE music, uh, did A-level music. And I was fortunate enough, my lecturers at the, at the college were both professional musicians, working in the field of um, panto and summer seasons and stuff. And they kind of got me working whilst I was at college and give me proper professional jobs, you know. So I kind of, my journey went from there onwards from that point really i mean manchester has produced so many fantastic musicians and bands from the likes of uh, 10cc for example and sad cafe yeah. and then moving on to um, oasis and simply red and lots of others i mean it really was and still is a hotbed of music isn't it yes especially in the 80s and 90s there's obviously quite a bit going on still today i was kind of too young at that time i wasn't really of adulthood um, when all those bands are having success. Yeah, but a lot of those bands obviously came around specific studios, so there's always been the facility to record and get involved in music, hasn't there? Several uh, city centre um, studios. The one that um, you're on about before, 10CC, they had, I think this was called Strawberry Studios. That was in it was in Stockport, um, so they recorded all their stuff there. In other areas of music as well, there's a guy called Ian Wilson who was with the band Sad Cafe. They set up a studio that later became part of Alpha Sound, Radio Jingles Company, um, which was all produced in Manchester. They then became agents of Jam um, in mm-hmm. Dallas, who produced radio jingles and so on. And obviously that meant an involvement in all sorts of things, from film scores to adverts for television and so on. So there are so many different areas you could have gone into. I know it was more the live theatre aspect of that I went into through working from the, my college lecturers, summer seasons, pantos, TV shows, theatre tours. Do you remember Paul O'Grady did Lily Savage yeah. back in the day? So he was on the circuit. We worked with him for about three years doing, well, he had a TV show. We did about three stand-up tours. Did a musical theatre version of Prison Sidewalk H, which was a, a right laugh. <laughs> so through my 20s, post-college, was theatre really. So where did the famous names come in then? Because I mentioned some of them but there are many, many more. Tony Hadley, Rick Astley, Holly Johnson, Heather Small 
you know, right the way through to Boney M, The Weather Girls, yeah. Nick Kershaw. How did all that come about? Well, early 2000s, I had a call from a fixer who was doing an Australian tour with an 80s kind of show. On that was Belinda Carlisle, Paul Young, Go Western, Kim Wilde. And it was the two-week tour around Australia, and they'd have like a house band who will play for all the artists on the show. So one artist will walk on, do their set, and then the next artist comes on because you've got the same band in place for the entire show. So I, I did that, and then there was plenty more what followed that UK tours with different artists. There was a 70s version of it called The Best Disco in Town, which where you got the Three Degrees and Evel Brown and Candy Statton and Gloria Gaynor. So before long, doing these multiple artists, 80s and 70s shows, you had you know accumulated quite a lot of artists who you've backed and worked with along the way for, for quite a few years, you know. And then the spin-offs of that is artists like Rick Astley, he didn't have a band when he joined this arena tour we did with him. And so he used the house band that he'd worked with on that for his own solo gigs when they came in. So not only did you do these multi-artist shows, you then end up working for Rick and doing all his shows after that. Same with Kim Wilde. She used the house band for her. And I'm still with Kim now. I've been with Kim for 19 years and I've just been everywhere with Kim over that time. So it was an in where these artists would come in and do these shows. And then, you 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 know, before long, you when you look at the list of people, it's just it's ridiculous, really. Yeah. Well, I think just before COVID, I remember speaking to Kim and Marty Wilde because they were just about to go out on tour. I think the tour may have actually never even started, but even if it did, it probably was cut short because of COVID. Were you on that tour? No, I think that was Marty's actual... um, Because Marty still does... Um, touring mm. and does gigs um, and I think Kim was doing some kind of special appearances yeah. on, on a few of them so it was predominantly his band I have worked with Marty before he has been involved in a couple of corporates or charity work we've done with Kim and and Marty's come along and we've done a couple of songs with him, which was always good fun so no I wasn't involved in that particular tour but we've we've been touring since March this year we've been back out with Kim it's all been dates which have been postponed for the last two years you know they've been moved to last year and then they'll move back to this year so hopefully this year we'll manage to do our um, uk tour in september german tour in october and the dutch tour in i think that's november followed by the swedish tour in december so <laughs> hopefully that'll all happen you know we're getting into the end of the year where you're unsure whether covid's going to rear its ugly head again and things are going to start being put back. But no, for up to that point, we've got lots of festivals and stuff over the summer with Kim. I tell you what, it's not a bad contacts book you've got there either, is it? Where you find Go West next to Howard Jones and you know it starts with ABC and right the way through the alphabet pretty much. It, now, yeah, at the same much. time, you've been doing all sorts of other stuff as well, some national um, musical theatre tours. Talk about those in a moment's time. But when were you first aware of Panto? Did you go and see Panto in Manchester as a kid? Yes, I've got very faint memories of going with my friend's mother and my friend obviously and we went to the Palace Theatre on Oxford Road and I think it was Dick Whittington it's a very faint memory but I do remember the turn up at the theatre and all the lights of the fire uh, and then the show and the fact that people were able to shout during the show and interact with the cast and the baddie and yeah that's the, my first memory of it and I think I went a couple of times with school on school trips but I think that was to the Oldham Coliseum um, and then obviously as I got older, I went with my own family to watch a few here and there, but kind of didn't really pay too much attention to it until I first performed on one at the age of 17, which was at the um, 
Northern College of Music. Um, it was like a production of Mother Goose. And that was my lecturer who was the MD. <laughs> and he booked me for that. And he said, make sure when we're doing a matinee next week that you're bringing sick to college. <laughs> because he, obviously I wasn't supposed to be doing that on, the, on his watch. <laughs> you know, it's quite funny. But that was uh, my first kind of chance at being in a pit in a theatre and doing that job. I mean, obviously times have changed now. We'll talk about your role, you know, now, because there are, I, I guess it might, might be 50-50 almost, you know, with those that have live bands and those that have backing tracks. Uh, but we'll talk about that in a moment's time. But how did it feel to you, for you then, you know, having done that as a 17-year-old, to then be doing the big musical theatre shows? Because, I mean, Little Shop of Horrors, for instance, was at the Oldham uh, Coliseum. You were on that, weren't you? Yes, I was Slack College again for that. That was another one that I had the fortune to play on. Again, I was the MD had come up from London. Sarah Lancashire was playing Audrey. And they needed a keys player, Hammond and everything else. Um, so I got a call for that through the lectures at the college because obviously they must have um, reached out. I went and did that. I think it's about a four-week run up in Oldham and I was probably 18 at the time I did that. I'll tell you what, it's not a bad start to a career though, is it? I know, I was really lucky. I would get just down to my um, my two lecturers from college. Yeah. Really, I don't know what, what the path of life would have taken if I'd gone to another college to study music. I really don't. And then big UK tours of things like Jekyll and Hyde and um, Beauty and the Beast, the the Disney yeah. musical, which is now uh, on tour again and about to go back into the uh, into the West End at the Palladium. Yes. Um, Beauty and the Beast, such a fantastic show, isn't it? Yeah, the biggest production kind of show I've done where, you know, the sets are amazing, the costumes are amazing, the band... Um, I was basically playing all the strings on that on that show. It was the the string arrangement had been condensed for like a, a playable keyboard, the two chair triggering all live string samples on the keyboard. So it was a really busy and it was a tricky part to play. Really, you know, it took a couple of weeks to to learn it properly, and then when it's, when you're doing it, you're doing it. You know, um, I actually met my wife on that tour. She was the swing dance captain of the tour, so I was only supposed to do it for about three months, and then I obviously um, fell in love with this girl and I ended up there for a year I think it was in the end before I left and then a couple of years later we got married that was the um, the love story I mean you've, you've hinted at something there which maybe people who go and see a show haven't thought about and that being you know it's as much a science as it is an art these days in terms of the sampling and so on um, yeah. we'll talk about that in a moment's time but what was your first professional panto job then? The first one I did was a professional panto um, the second one, the year after, I was sent to Portsmouth to do South, South Sea, I think the King's Theatre. Mm -hmm. And that was more of a, yeah, it's probably more of a professional one because it was a proper theatre as opposed to a, like a lecture theatre within the college. And that was called at Whittington. And I can't remember who the production company was now, but I went down there as Keys 2 for that. But that was a big thing because I was 18 at the time and I had to leave home for like five weeks and get myself digs in a seaside town, kind of a big, bold step for someone who's so young, really, because um, I didn't know any of the band members neither, so I was kind of going in there fresh-faced and didn't really know much about what I was doing at the time, or I'd like to probably say. But you soon learn by other people. That's the thing. You learn your trade by being doing these jobs with other professional musicians around you. It's a far cry from musical supervisor, which you were, of course, at first family before you came to imagine. So yeah. what sort of progression did you have from going in as a keyboard player through to yeah. musical director and then musical supervisor? Probably a couple of years after that, that South Sea show, I then picked up a couple of 
years of um, MDing, Pantos. First off, I was in Land Dudno. Um, that was for, at the time, e mm-hmm. So my lecturers um, spoke to the fixer because he was asking for young MDs coming through and put me forward for it. So I did uh, Land Dudno then for four years, which time I moved to Milton Keynes here after. Then I did four years in High Wycombe as MD, which point was 2005 now. And I'm like, I don't live in London anymore. I want to, I want to get a, a, a Manchester-based MD role. And that was the year first time I actually take, took over from the kudos that it was then. Mm-hmm. They got the contract for the Manchester uh, Opera House, so which I contacted the then supervisor, which was Chris Hatt, saying, you know, I'd really love to um, do the Manchester gig because um, that's where I'm based and this is my CV. And he ran me up and he offered me the job, which was grand. And then I MD'd there for probably, I think, six years at Manchester Hover House for First Family. And then um, after that season, the last sixth year, I got a call from Kevin asking me if I would like to be the supervisor for the company going forward, which was a, a massive change for me because normally on MD roles, you know, you'd start thinking about that in November and then you'd do this, this the run and you'd finish in January and then you was kind of free through again. This taking on 10 different venues, fixing 50 musicians, writing the music and arranging clicks and the scores for 10 venues each year was a little, a very big job and a big asset. And I didn't even know I'd be able to do that from scratch. Um, and then your year starts a lot sooner than then. You know, you start working on it back in, well, as soon as you can possibly. You've got to fix the musicians, which is the first job back in June, July, and then arranging music from August onwards up till the deadline, which will be November when they start rehearsals. So the first couple of years were tough. I was probably up in my studio till four in the morning some nights, um, till getting started again at nine in the morning the next day. Loads of emails, can we change this, can we change that? <laughs> we need this, we've changed our minds on this. And you just, you know, the workload is intense, but the reward of going to go and watch the shows once they're up and running and listening to your work being played back and being performed on the stage is, is very rewarding. That was a highlight of the, you know, to go and to see them in being performed. That was that really. It was a bit of a mad five or six years before First Family closed down. The other thing that people may not realise if they come and see a panto, I, I suppose in, in many ways there are three different types of, of music. There's a fully live band... Then there's a mix of a maybe a smaller live band with a click track to support it. And then yeah. there's totally pre-recorded music. Yeah. And they're all very different, aren't they? Yeah. Well, there's a reason for a lot of that. The main thing is, I, last year, I think I did some tracks for Imagine, for I think it was Hoxton Hall. And the reason they have no band there is there's no pit. Hmm. And it's the same with the uh, De Montford Hall in Leicester. Mm-hmm. There was no pit there. And I think it's just sometimes it's just easy to just do tracks for the show. I was just looking through before. I did a Peter Pan in, in Leicester for them. And it was like 68 musical cues, you know, because you've got to cue everything. It's not, everything has to be covered scene change-wise, play-ons and play-offs on top of the actual main numbers of the songs. So there's lots to fill on these things. And then you go to other venues where you can have your full-size band. They've got the budget for it, which also is another big main point of the musicians. It's the budget. And, yeah, so the bigger the band, the better. It makes my job easier to some extent because when we have venues where they can only maybe afford a, a drummer and a, an MD, then the click, we need to use click tracks, which will have the bass on, 
for instance, because the bass is missing. But we do tend to use click tracks, even with a with a, with a four-piece band set up, because you, there's always stuff that you need, percussion, timps and stuff, and extra vocals, which enhance the ensemble singing just to beef it up. Even, you know, the West big West End shows with the musicians they've got in the pit there, like 15 members, they're still using clicks just to, to enhance the sound as, as best they can, you know make it sound as full as possible it's worth pointing out that the for those who don't know the click track literally means it has a click intro which the musicians will hear in their headphones yeah just so that they're in time with the backing track Uh, now i was in the peter pan that you talked about the music was absolutely fantastic i'll tell you what is the biggest nightmare for a live cast and and probably for you in terms of the music as well is something like the 12 days of christmas because it actually is stop start all the way through because things are are, are choreographed to go wrong so I, i i mean i have no idea how many sections of track or tracks you have to produce for that but that must be a nightmare i'm just trying to find that now um, Christmas. <laughs> I do know it's got something ridiculous because it's it's a stopping and starting and yeah. you pick up. Just trying to record it was a nightmare because you'd have to go through it meticulously to see. But there was like probably forty five cues just for that one song. Yeah. You know, the song sheet can be a bit like that as well. If it's if it's all on track, you know, it mm-hmm. might be that you have to record it once, but then you might have to do a speeded up version or something like that. So Yeah, and a full fin- finished version before we go into the walk down. It's unfortunate because Panto, you know, it's better when it's spontaneous with an MD and a live drummer and a band. Um, but sometimes it's not possible and it, to try and put it onto track, it is, I mean, the operator must have an absolute nightmare because he's basically, <laughs> he's the MD, you know what I mean? He's got to make decisions when he presses go on, on the machine to press play, you know, and especially with routines like that, it must be very, very difficult to get the timing right. You can have a bit of fun with the, with a live band as well. I'm sure you've done that as an MD. I mean, certainly with yeah. the drummer as well. The drummer can add all sorts of sound effects and percussion and have Every a bit night. of fun with it. Yeah, just change things on a nightly basis, you know, just to keep things fresh and the the cast look forward to that what they're going to do tonight you know or there'll always be a part of the show which you can always just tweak each night just to keep things silly between the cast and the band so during Um, the year you'll presumably maybe around now get a list of song ideas for a particular panto you'll then maybe have a look at the notes and write out the parts and then would you get a band into a studio i mean a lot of that you might be able to play yourself on keyboards for instance how does it work okay so we'll get the scripts through and then i will make a list from the scripts of all the musical moments in the show make a spreadsheet it's probably 60 odd 60s normally about 65 musical cues they give us the songs which they want for each main bit, and then I will make an edit of these songs, cut them down for like a four minute, as I usually are, to like a one and a half minutes, maybe two minutes version of the song, and I'll send that back to the creative team, and then they will say, give the thumbs up, say, yeah, that's the right length, it's perfect, or they might say, can we have another chorus on the end, and I'll rechange that, and then when they get signed off, I know that's the arrangement that we're working towards for that show. And then I will arrange that then for the members of the band. What we'll do at that point, actually, once we've got the edit, we'll, that'll be sent to the choreographer as well, who might want to tweak things. Normally, they like to speed things up occasionally. So we'll, we'll get it just right, the edit, and that is it. Then it's, it's um, set in stone. And I will transcribe it for the band, like I say, and then work with the click track. So like we discussed before, mm. we'll have a track of click, which the only the band here if there's no bass player at a venue we'll have the bass will be on track on its own little stem we call them stems which is like a, a WAV file then we'll have another WAV file which will might have 
the guitar. If it's a rock and roll song and it, it really needs guitar to drive it along, we'd have the guitar on the next track. And if there's any like brass sections and the, the brass would go down a separate stem and that would be produced and put down onto a stem as well. So then when the song is being played with the band, it will sound like there's 15 people in the orchestra, big brass section, percussionists, etc. But just before I start to commit to recording, we will tend to send the main songs out to the principals of the show just to check keys. Like when you're saying about getting a band in the studio, I kind of program everything myself using virtual instruments and stuff like that. Uh, obviously guitar, I will sometimes get a guitarist in and record them playing the song. Singers come in and record some backing vocals. So it's always good to make sure the key is okay for the cast members before you commit to recording the audio of guitar or backing vocals because once they've been recorded and mixed, it's very difficult to change the key of them. You can probably get away with a, a semitone here or there, but if it's a couple of tones, you know, it's, they're going to sound either really dirty, the vocals, or like you've hired a Mickey Mouse to come and do a session <laughs> in the studio. So it's always, you know, then you've got to do it again in, in some uh, circumstances. So it's always good to try and nail the keys, make sure everyone's happy with the keys, and, and then we can carry on with recording the extra bits we need, which the custom, I just have in my own home studio and we do all that here. I mix it all here and then we um, send it off to the I mean, that, that shows over the uh, 29, 30 years you've been doing it, uh, how things have become easier in some ways, <sighs> you know, with technology yeah. and so on. But let's not forget as well, you've spoken about the singing, you know, the songs that go through the show. We've talked about, you know, some of the other incidental music, but then there'll be play-ons, there'll be play-offs, there'll be an overture. There'll yeah. be other music as well. So it's a massive job, and that's for not just one panto. Well, that's, yeah, if you do four, four or five, then you know you... And they're normally always different shows. Um, if you've got two Cinderella's going out, then, you know, there's a good chance that the majority of the music, you know, like Cinderella's entrance or the fairy engines, will be the same in both places. But depending on the cast and the casting of each show, you know, the, 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 the show could be completely different. 80% different music to the other production, which is the same story, basically, <laughs> which is a shame because it'd be nice just to do a mirror image of a show, but it's never was as simple as that. And what about COVID-19? How much of an impact did that have on you, not just for the panto, but everything else you do? Well, everything just stopped for me. You know, first of all, it was funny because it first got, oh, we're going to lose these, these shows in April and May and June, but we'll... July ones are still on, and then as time went on, you know, you get a phone call, all the July and August is off now. It's kind of drip-fed to me. I didn't really know it'd be 18 months without any work. You just thought, oh, well, the September stuff's still looking like it's in the diary, you know. And then it's like, well, it's all been moved to next year, and next year came, and then you think, oh, right, well, we'll be okay for January. And, and it kind of just got all moved back and moved back again. If I would have been told in that March of 2020 that, it was going to be exactly a year and a half until you're going to be doing any shows again. I may have probably had a career change at that point because I would have known this length of time there would have been out of work for. Just because it was kind of drip-fed and moved down the diary by a couple of months and thinking, oh, we'll be okay. It kind of just kept you longing for that to, to, you know, to come about, and it never did. So it was a real tough time just for um, not having anything to do, nothing to um, get out of bed for most mornings because there was just no work. But I knew everyone was in the same position, so after a, a couple of months, I kind of eased my anxiety about that because everybody who was in the music business or dancing or singing or actors it was all kind of in the same boat so what was it like last christmas then to be back it was really good to be 
in a theatre, we you know performing in front of um, audience members again who were, who were enjoying themselves. I found it was a bit, little bit strange because there were still restrictions in place. Mm-hmm. Um, we was I was based in Wales last year in London now, and um, one day walking saying we don't need to wear masks today because we're all in a bubble. And the next day we changed our minds. We everyone got to wear masks now. It was makes a bit of a sterile environment. We no one really hung out with each other much because we was all trying to be careful and not catch anything or spread it to other cast members. So it was great to be, I mean, I had MD in a show for 10 years at this point because I've been a supervisor for First Family and then I've been arranging for uh, Imagine for the last four or five years. Mm-hmm. So taking the MD job, was it was great to be back in the pit again. As I say, it was just the background of it all, just having to be careful because normally Pants was a really fun time and it's a social time for the cast and and everyone involved and it was it was you know we, we barely saw each other outside of the theatre well especially because you closed on Christmas Eve as well we did so we got the news that they changed the rules in, in uh, Wales and uh, we got the news about four days before like we'll finish on, on Christmas Eve and that'll be it so you know it's a shame because we'd gotten so far got this great show on the audience members were loving it it was getting great reviews and then we had to cut it short, which was a real shame. Because that, that week, Christmas up to New Year, you know, it's normally a good busy week now because mm-hmm. everyone's off work and you've got families, it's full, you know. And it's a shame because you bunch of sold a theatre on a non-social distancing kind of setup, and then you've got to social distance, it's impossible. You've just got to say, close the show. Well, we keep our fingers crossed that uh, there's no interruption this year. Everybody's mm. really looking forward to it again. Before we finish, I've got to ask you, after 30 years or so of, of doing panto and seeing panto as a child, what's your favourite panto, Steve? My favourite panto is it's got to be Cinderella for me. I love the story. I love the magic of it. I'm just very familiar with the, the way the storyline goes as well. I think I've done probably done more Cinderella's in my time as an MD than I have other shows. I love the horse moment at the end. Yeah, for me, definitely Cinderella. And the scope for music is excellent in that as well because Buttons can have a comedy song, a patter song yeah. or something maybe. Um, or the Friends song with Cinderella. The Uglies can have a comedy song. Then you've yeah. got you know, that magical music for the trans transformation, transformation pumpkin scene. to the coach all that I mean yeah. it's, it's got everything isn't it and the leaving of the ballroom scene in the second half the low moment when she's you know out in the woods on her own and the, the festival dance big celebration thing the, the ball the ballroom obviously you can, it's a great opportunity to stick great songs in there for the um, when she goes to the ball and the, mm. the, the, the dance stuff so there's a couple of duets we can throw in there it's my favourite glitzy one of them all of the story as well well listen I hope the panto season goes well for you again I know you've got a busy year ahead with the number of pantos that you're working on in the meantime Steve thank you so much for talking to us thank you Martin love to speak to you and I'm afraid that's about it for another episode don't forget to subscribe to the series to catch up with any episodes you've missed so far and make sure you don't miss any future episodes also join me next time when I'll be talking once again to one of the UK's leading experts on British pantomime he is senior curator of modern and contemporary theatre and performance at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Simon Sladen joins me next time for the next episode of Just Imagine. Thank you for listening to the latest edition of Just Imagine, the podcast series from Imagine Theatre. And you can find out more by going to www.imagintheatre.co.uk.